Hi again, folks, and welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Property Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima again. Thanks for tuning in to this first episode for 2019. Hope you had a fantastic holiday season. We've got exciting content planned here for you throughout the year. More great interviews. We'll be catching up again with some of our previous guests on the podcast and see what they've got on their plates this year. We're going to have last year's summary and this year's projections episode. That's always a big one towards the end of this month or very early next month. But for this episode, we're going to focus on strategy again, which is always a popular topic. And in this case, we're going to be talking about diversity and hedging and how we can apply that to our property investment portfolios here in Japan. Now, before we dive right into the finer points of how to accomplish this, Just a few words on why diversity and hedging are so important, not only for property investment, but for any kind of investment, really. This may be obvious to some or most of you, but in case you're new to the world of investing, you keep hearing these terms, you're not too sure about what they mean or why they're important. Essentially, it's a case of don't keep all of your eggs in one basket, which applies to anything involving financials. The main reason being risk allocation. So all investments carry various levels and types of risks within them, some more than others. And generally speaking, the higher the potential profit, the higher the risk normally is as well. If you're invested in stocks, for example, you could be investing in blue chip, well-established companies such as various electronics giants, large shopping or fashion brands, software companies like Apple or Microsoft, etc., And while your returns may be modest, you would normally not run a huge risk of your investment imploding and losing all of its value overnight. Although that certainly does happen to larger companies too, but naturally happens far more often if you're dealing with new and more experimental companies which have only just entered the market, maybe still undervalued simply because no one can tell how well they're going to do. On the other hand, if you chose your startup investment right and market fundamentals are in your favor, smaller and newer companies can make a far larger profit when their value suddenly shoots up exponentially. Naturally, there are people out there who prefer to only invest in those types of companies, and for them, diversity in hedging will normally mean investing in a large number of companies uh, of that particular profile or various segments, market segments, in the hope that if even one or two of them hits the big time, it will more than cover up for the others which didn't do as well or maybe even went out of business altogether. Other people who prefer an even more diverse approach may choose to invest in both and allocate, for example, the main part of their portfolio to blue-chip company stocks while investing a smaller percentage of their funds in smaller, more adventurous companies And this is where another aspect of diversity and hedging comes into play, which is the added value in exposure to these various market segments and profiles of companies. So in this view, we stand to benefit from any uptick in any or all market segments, as well as to be able to weather any storms in any particular arena, simply by virtue of continuing to benefit from the others. And finally, spreading our bets, because the best any investment is really, in the best of cases, uh, a well-informed gamble. We give ourselves the added potential profitability of being able to allocate profits and recycle our accumulated funds. So if we've earned some value in one particular growth sector, we can then sell parts of that investment class at a profit, reinvest them into something which may be going through a downturn at the moment, 
Whereas if, again, all of our eggs are in the one basket, we have to just sit and wait for things to get better before we can liquidate our funds and take advantage of other current trends. And to rise even further above this view, diversity extends into various asset classes as well. A well-hedged investment portfolio will contain some exposure to equity markets, some real estate or a combination of both, such as REITs, real estate investment trusts, for example, which are publicly traded stocks in real estate companies, um, other fund structures, perhaps, and on the highest and lowest ends of the risk tolerance graph, maybe some direct investment in startup companies or in sovereign bonds on the other end of the scale, which generally... Uh, provide very low returns traditionally, but are considered extremely safe, similar to a term deposit in a savings account. And lastly, of course, there is geographical diversity, which means that we can invest in different countries, continents, and so forth. Again, giving ourselves the benefit of being hedged in various locations, socioeconomic profiles, and currencies, all of which serves all of the purposes that we've just outlined. So the same for most practical purposes goes for real estate. Even if we're more comfortable investing only in direct ownership of real estate properties, bricks and mortar, so to speak, we can still diversify across continents and countries, as well as within those countries themselves. So what does that mean for anyone invested in Japan, which is really what we'd like to unpack here? Well, the obvious and most simple diversity and hedging strategy that we can apply is geographical. So simply put, purchasing different properties in different cities around the country. This gives us not only economic diversity, meaning we're invested in various socioeconomic profiles, such as slightly more blue-collar industrial areas like Nagoya or Shizuoka in central Japan, and Kitakyushu or Oita in the west, Chiba near Tokyo, places which may provide relatively higher yields, but may also have tenants that are slightly rougher or can have more payment issues, etc., and also often have less capital growth potential, particularly the smaller towns in this list. Other parts of our portfolio can feature more white-collar locations, which have been offering and will continue to offer more growth potential whenever Japan's economy does well, but tend to offer relatively lower rental yields on average. So places like Tokyo, Fukuoka, Osaka, where returns can be lower but are far more stable. Vacancies are shorter. And tenants tend to pay on time as a rule since they're most likely to be gainfully employed. And then there are touristic destinations, cities which enjoy uh, seasonal or annual domestic uh, international tourism throughout the year. Places like Sapporo, Kyoto, and so forth. Again, yet another type of industry and economy sector that we can gain, gain exposure to. But not only that, needless to say, geographical diversity, particularly in a country like Japan, which tends to suffer a lot of earthquakes in comparison with other countries around the world, also gives us far better risk mitigation for obvious reasons. Insurance policies do cover some parts of the natural disaster damages, as we mentioned here in the past on a few occasions, and so do building reserve fund pools in case we're invested in individual units in co-owned blocks. But all of these compensation payouts take time, as does the actual renovation itself after an earthquake hits. So it's, of course, good to keep at least part of our income stream going in other locations while we're going through the motions with properties that have been hit. Another layer of diversity um, above geographic diversity, which again is more socioeconomic in nature, is the age of the property itself. 
Naturally, older and smaller properties tend to draw lower income earners, since rent is lower in comparison with newer and fancier properties. But the price graph trends upwards and downwards far more sharply than the rental graph, which makes for higher percentage yields on older properties as opposed to newer ones. Size also plays a factor in the same socioeconomic profile and also gives us another layer in the diversity matrix, but giving us exposure to all ages and family situations. So larger properties, which are suitable for families, as opposed to singles or younger, older couples, which populate the smaller properties. So the larger ones can generate uh, lower yields and also cost more to renovate if and when a tenant moves out. But families, on the other hand, make for longer and more stable tenancies, as opposed to singles who move around more, young couples which relocate a lot um, due to work or because they're starting a family, and older couples which unfortunately tend to move out if and when one or both of them become sick or, as we've covered here a month ago, uh, pass away. So bigger properties, again, lower yields, higher expenses, but far longer tenancies just due to the fact that there's a family in there. Naturally, the type of the property itself is the next layer that we can add to our hedge portfolio. So houses and small unit blocks give us more flexibility as far as reutilization of the space is concerned. We've talked about here, uh, we've talked about this here in the past. Uh, Redesign, expansion, renovation of structures for higher rent. Reutilization for short-term stays, which can generate higher returns at the cost of more hands-on management and perhaps more seasonal income. And even complete demolition and removal of an older property for the purpose of rebuilding on that same land parcel. For example, demolishing an old house and building a warehouse, logistics facility, or even a parking lot. Or if the land size and the zoning allow, we might want to build a small unit block in its stead. These are all ways in which, if we've got the budget for it, we can increase the value of the property as well as its yield. On the other hand, owning individual units in co-owned blocks while doesn't allow us the same creative freedom that owning an entire structure does, will be a safer and more stable and reliable type of investment, at least as far as out-of-pocket expenses are concerned, since most of these um, individual units are covered by monthly building fees, except the interior of the unit itself. So there are normally no structural expenses that owners need to pay for, aside from some very unique cases. So again, diversity with both types or all types of properties is is always key. And lastly, even if we don't build any commercial properties on our own land, we can invest directly in them. So commercial properties of various sorts, such as shops, offices, restaurants, bars, and so forth, give us the advantage of being able to raise the rents more often if the economy and the business do well but also increases that same rent income volatility when the economy does less than ideally for the very same reasons. Business owners are more likely to ask for a rent reduction or to simply move out when they need to, as opposed to residential tenants, which are far more stable in this regard, especially in Japan. Shops, bars, restaurants, and anywhere similar with a lot of walk-in traffic tend to suffer far more wear and tear as opposed to offices or residential properties, but again, can also generate higher yields. So one of the reasons why it's far easier to diversify a real estate portfolio here in Japan, as opposed maybe to other countries, is the affordability of the market here. So 
In other developed countries such as Australia, the USA, um, New Zealand, large parts of Europe, a relatively modest real estate investment budget, say somewhere between $100,000 to $300,000, will most likely get us um, one or two houses or condo units at best. In Australia, maybe not even that. Um, in Japan, and particularly out of Tokyo and Osaka, though, this same budget will enable us to get three five, or even six individual properties or houses, or maybe even a small residential um, unit or office or mixed-purpose building. So this affordability lets us diversify our income streams and potential growth plays far more, which, again, minimizes risk and gives us more opportunity to profit on various different fronts. Now, the percentage in which each and every one of us allocates to each of these various geographical locations, property profiles, market sectors, that's entirely up to us, of course, and each investor has their own criteria and risk tolerance in this regard. That also depends on what the rest of our investment portfolio is like. So if we've got, for example, expensive, um, low rental yields, high capital growth potential properties in other countries we may want to allocate a higher percentage of our Japanese portfolio to higher rental yield properties. Whereas if a large part of our investments are in more speculative, potentially high-yielding, say, stocks or Airbnb, short-term stay-type properties elsewhere, we may prefer our Japanese portfolio to feature more stable, steady, and reliable properties. And we wouldn't mind reducing our yield requirement for this purpose because we're making those higher yields elsewhere. It's really all a case of personal preferences, risk appetite, and again, diversity. But the main point here is that it's very easily doable, probably easier in Japan than in many other places, again, for all of the reasons that we've discussed today and as in previous episodes on the podcast. That's it from us for today, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode and hopefully got a few ideas that will help you diversify your own portfolios, whether they're entirely or only partially real estate oriented. We're not the first ones to say this, but it's generally agreed that any investment portfolio should have a substantial amount of property market exposure. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably already aware that Japan is one of the best places to do this, particularly for those who prefer well-established, stable, and properly documented markets, but may not necessarily want to spend millions or tens of millions of dollars for that purpose. Please do share this podcast with your own networks if you think they may find this content interesting. Leave us a comment wherever you might have found us. And most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could take a moment of your time and leave us a rating or even better review on the iTunes store, Spotify, or wherever you might have found us. Good or bad, we want to know what you think. And more ratings from more people mean that more people can find us and access this content, which hopefully can help them as well. We hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, from all of us here at NTI, we wish you a great 2019. And as always, happy investing. <laughs>